in this setting, folks can't tell, I'm about six feet tall. <laughs> and so I take advantage of that. I mean, there are days when I will put on the two or three inch heels because I know that I would like to dominate a space and I'm not afraid of that. I think we all need to figure out what our superpowers are and use them. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Jamie Jones Miller. She's the principal deputy assistant secretary of defense, which means that she's the top lobbyist for the Department of Defense. Most of her career, she worked on Capitol Hill, rising to become a chief of staff for a member of Congress. She says that her grandfather was a big influence in making her believe that she could do big, important things. At some point, I think I might have mentioned to him that I want to be president one day. And so he started a savings account and was started putting money in there. And it said the Jamie Jones Miller for President Fund. He thought, you know what? Someone just needs to buy in. Just one person. If one person buys in and says you can do it, then maybe maybe you'll do it. Both on the Hill and in the national defense world, she's worked in professional environments traditionally dominated by men. And though she's thrived, it hasn't always been easy. What's hard is that when you're in the room and you're at the table and you're the only woman, it's hard not to feel the burden of every other woman to perform for them. And so I do feel that, that yes, I know I know I belong at the table. I know I'm supposed to be in the room. I know my stuff. I'm prepared. I will outwork anybody. But I still feel that, okay, well, people are going to judge this entire class of people on me and my performance. And now here's my conversation with Jamie Jones Miller. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. You are the top lobbyist for the Defense Department. Uh, that's a pretty big portfolio, I can only imagine. Walk us through a day in the life of what it is that you do. Day in the life. Every day is different. I think most people would probably answer that question that way. Uh, in the Pentagon, it starts out with a lot of meetings, lots of meetings, uh, but with a thought in mind about how are we going to achieve our goals. Mm-hmm. Everybody's very mission-focused. Maybe we're prepping for a hearing, uh, so maybe we'll meet with senior leaders in the department to work through their testimony or do some Q&A with them. Um, Maybe we're about to roll out an announcement on some executive branch policy that we'll be talking through. Who needs to be notified about that particular issue and when? How does that happen? Then hopefully we get to go up to the Hill and spend some time with members and staff. Uh, The afternoon, a lot of times, is spent getting ready for the next day, and then we start all over again. So I generally get in between... 7.30 and 7.45 and end around 6 or 7. The irony there, the Pentagon starts really early, but late afternoon, early evening, Mm. the parking lots start to empty. But because the Hill works so late, we're there late too. So we're there early and then we're there late. So an all-encompassing gig. I can imagine this can be tricky times sometimes for someone in your position. This administration has been taking heat most recently for transferring money for things like raiding funds for military daycare centers to pay for the president's wall on the southern border. How do you navigate those waters? You're a creature of the Hill. You were chief of staff. So I think you obviously understand the pressures there. But there, there seems to be some conflict sometimes with kind of where this administration wants to go and where the Hill often wants to go. I think we look at it two ways. One, we have a set of external customers, the Hill, uh, stakeholders outside of government. And then we have internal customers within the Pentagon. So legislative affairs sits in between those two internal and external sets of customers. So no matter what the issue is, we're always kind of right in the middle. Uh, and that means we've got to be smart about knowing what our stakeholders care about and what motivates members. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other thing is it's relationships. Mm -hmm. It's having authentic relationships 
with people on the Hill and being willing to say, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find out. Mm -hmm. And that's very humbling because at some point you're expected to know all of the things and you can't possibly know all the things. So being able to say, I don't know, I'm going to get back to you. I'm going to figure out the answer. That's how we get it done. Yeah. So let's let's take a step back. Where did you grow up? Well, I am sort of local. Um, I was actually born in Maine. My dad was stationed up there when he was in the Air Force. but uh, And then he went uh, into the attache system, and we were stationed overseas in Latin America, off and on, basically up until high school. So I went to high school here in Northern Virginia, and then I went to college at James Madison University. And you said there was kind of this expectation of public service that was really kind of ingrained at an early age. Was there also an expectation you would work in the defense world? I don't know that necessarily there was an expectation. I really looked up to my parents, to my dad in particular, but my mom really uh, being a woman for her, being a woman in the defense industry in the 70s, 80s, 90s, particularly when we lived in Latin America, where it was a very male dominated society and they did not expect her to be a person, a principal. They expected her to be the wife. So I think she surprised a lot of people. And my parents really made a great team. And so I, in watching that, I I knew somehow I was going to go on this path. Did your mom ever give you pieces of advice or given her experience of, of, you know, lessons that she learned? My mom is a very kind of business first person. And her advice was, listen, you belong in that room. You are supposed to be at that table and know your stuff, be a trusted agent, and people will respect you and and work with you. The not-so-overt things that she showed me were being just dedicated to the mission, putting other people first, showing up, working all hours of the night to resolve a problem. Those intangible things are things that really resonated with me and I try to now carry forward. So you had that early kind of public service and also the defense world kind of background. Were you also always interested in politics? Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My first real job, I would say, was working for the son of then Senator Fritz Hollings in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, And he was a lobbyist at the state level. And we didn't really engage in politics too much, but it was it was there because his dad was a sitting U.S. senator. Uh, and then working in a couple lobbying firms when I got a, out of college, there were you know some opportunities to engage in campaigns, but it really wasn't something that spoke to me. And it wasn't until I started working for Congressman Whitman with our district starting maybe 30 minutes away from Washington, D.C., there were more opportunities to be involved in the campaign. So what I liked about the campaign was the building a strategy and figuring out how to move resources around to execute the strategy. What I didn't love was the door knocking (laughs) and the phone banking. But I knew every person that we connected with, whether on the official side of the congressional office or on the campaign, uh, they were a voter. And Congressman Whitman had this thought that his goal as a member was to be excellent in constituent service. His goal was not to achieve some title or some rank or be a committee chairman, but what he wanted to be known for was constituent service. And that also spoke to me from a servant leadership, public service kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. So I viewed campaigns through that lens of how do we communicate to constituents about what he is doing to serve them back in Washington. I was reading uh, this morning about 
some clips that you were in, and it was talking about when you were a teenager, your grandfather did something to encourage you to run for office. Yes, my grandfather, <laughs> Papa, Logan Jones. Um, my grandfather uh, and grandmother uh, lived in Mexico City for many, many years, longer than, than they lived in the United States. My dad actually grew up there before he went to college. And my grandfather was very passionate about empowering me to go do whatever it is I wanted. And uh, at some point, I think I might have mentioned to him that I want to be president one day. And so he started a, um, a savings account and was started putting money in there. And it said the Jamie Jones Miller for President Fund. And he got a stamp made. And anytime he deposited a check into that account, he would stamp it with a Jamie Jones or at that time, Jamie Jones for president a stamp, which I thought was pretty cool. And that was a really, I guess, subtle push. But on the other hand, he thought, you know what, someone just needs to buy in just one person. If one person buys in and says you can do it, then maybe maybe you'll do it. It's pretty progressive when you think about it. I mean, at the time, not a mm-hmm. lot of women were running for any level of office. Do you think he was just trying to teach you that you could do anything that you, you know, that you set your mind to? I think that was it. I think for him living again in a, a Latin society, very male dominated, um, I'm the only granddaughter, um, wanted to say, hey, yeah, you can go, you can do whatever you want. And whatever it is you choose, I will be with you. Do you ever want to run for office? You know, people ask me that and I say, gosh, I think I know too much. (laughs) I know. But the serious answer is, um, again, service is very important to me. I'm not sure elected office is the right path. It's, It's something that I would always think about. But I know the hard work and the time that it takes to go into running for office yeah. and never say never. Right now, I'm, I'm focused on supporting friends and family who are in public service or interested in running for office and, and sharing with them what I've experienced. The war wounds. You know, you know where all the bodies are buried. <laughs> yes. Things not to do mostly. Yes. Like I have a really, you know, people ask, well, what should I do? And my feedback is always, let me tell you what not to do or what was very painful for me. And which is actually kind of cathartic a little bit. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Um, we'll talk to you. So you were doing kind of state lobbying at that level. Uh, I covered lobbying for a long time. It often gets a really bad rap. But I wanted to get your perspective on maybe what it was like to go from the outside, you know, in and kind of doing the lobbying aspect from there. And then you kind of come full circle to to be internal. And then now you're lobbying, but for the government. It's very interesting that you put it that way. There is an us and there is a them. When you're on the Hill, you are us. As soon as you leave, it doesn't matter that I'd been there for 13 years. I automatically became them. Mm -hmm. I started out lobbying because it was an opportunity I'd walked into in Columbia, South Carolina, came back here to the Washington, D.C. area, and my husband started working at GW. I started working for a really small firm, and I learned a lot. We had about 10 or 12 clients, and it was very interesting to watch how we were managing all the clients and all the issues. But what I realized when I walked out of that meeting with a staffer and a client I had no idea what the staffer was doing with the information that we gave them. Like, what was the next step for them? How were they going to talk to their boss? How did they make decisions about priorities in their office? So I felt like I wasn't really serving my clients well because I'd never worked on the Hill. Mm -hmm. So I took a chance and ran across an announcement posting for a legislative assistant with a Virginia member of Congress and called them up and applied. And they took a chance on me. 
connections, Washington relationships, super important. I looked up the paper phone directory back then. (laughs) The legislative director was a fraternity brother of my husband's from JMU. And I said, Tim, you've got to call Andy. And such a Washington story. Such a Washington story. <laughs> and Tim called Andy and said, yes, I'm happy to bring her in and talk to her. And so they took a chance on me. Um, Congressman Forbes is my first Hill boss, took a chance on me, let me work a portfolio of issues. And then I got to work on our the Armed Services Committee portfolio and the Judiciary portfolio. And I'm really grateful because it did answer those questions. You know, when you the person leaves an office uh, with a they leave. 20 white papers, right. right? What does the office do with that on the back end? So not only did it answer that, but I really felt like I was able to help any advocate coming into the office customize what how they were going to approach us, but then what we were going to do for them. Like, mm-hmm. How do we prioritize what makes the most, most sense out of those 20 issue papers? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's start with this one because we're on the right committee of jurisdiction or because I know there's a coalition of people already working on this. So I felt like I could help the advocate, you know, advocacy folks be better about working with our office because I'd sit on the other side of the table. Yeah. In the past, you talked about gender disparity in Congress. Uh, women make up around 20 percent of Congress now. When you were working on the Hill, did you feel that imbalance? I mean, certainly I've talked to a lot of women's use of staff and about kind of the road, the barriers to entry there and even just the kind of the community that they're trying to create now and to change things. When I was in my mid-20s and working on defense issues, you know, I'd walk into a room of staffers that were, you know, for HASC, the House Armed Services Committee. Absolutely. It was me and one, one other woman. So, yeah, I felt it, but I, I was aware of it, but I never felt different, that I was treated differently. And the same thing today, I will walk into a room and I am generally one of the youngest uh, and certainly one of the only women in the room. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I and I observe it, but I'm not made to feel that way. And so I think maybe that's, you know, reflective of how things are changing. But what's hard, and as a chief of staff, I felt this, What's hard is that when you're in the room and you're at the table and you're the only woman, it's hard not to feel the burden of every other woman to perform for them. Mm-hmm. And so I do feel that, that yes, I know, I know I belong at the table. I know I'm supposed to be in the room. I know my stuff. I'm prepared. I will outwork anybody. But I still feel that, okay, well, people are going to judge this entire class of people on me and my performance. So that, I will say, is still there. Yeah. No, I think that kind of that pressure, right, of like being yes. like overprepared, right? I'm going to overperform because you can't just perform at maybe the general level. That's right. That other people in the room are. Yep. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, you know, in this setting, folks can't tell. I'm about six feet tall. <laughs> and so I take advantage of that. I mean, there are days when I will put on the two or three inch heels mm-hmm. because I know that I would like to dominate a space mm-hmm. and I'm not afraid of that. I think we all need to figure out what our superpowers are, <laughs> right, and use them. Yeah. And you know, I, I joke about that a little bit, but but it's true. I do think that having confidence and a presence makes a big difference. And so if I can do anything to help other people figure out what their superpower is and their confidence and how they build their presence, I think that's a gift that I can give other people. So you're on the hill, you're comfortable, things are good, right? I yes. mean, it's not easy street, but it's it's a good, it's you know, good. it's a good gig. And you, good you, gig. you've been there for a while, you know what you're doing. What made you decide that in 2017, it was time you were going to join the Trump administration? I love this question. In 2016, uh, Congressman Whitman was running for re-election to Congress. He was on a short list and exploring running for governor of Virginia. 
and we were considering a scenario where we were we could have a Senate vacancy if the Clinton-Kane ticket had won the presidency. And so in essence, I was running three campaigns. We were also pitching Congressman Whitman to be chairman of the Sea Power Subcommittee on Hask, so make it a fourth campaign. Uh, and I you didn't had, have enough on your hands. Didn't have enough on, you know, and running the, the congressional office is my day job. Everything else, you know, mm-hmm. early morning and at night and on the weekends. And I learned a lot that year about a lot of things, a lot about myself, what I liked doing, what I didn't like doing. Things worked out the way that they should. Congressman Whitman was reelected to Congress. He became Sea Power Subcommittee Chairman. Um, he decided he wasn't going to run for governor. And some time progressed, and we had revisited our office goals from when he was first elected. And I was looking through that list, and I thought, wow, we've just about checked the box on this list. And that got me started thinking about, am I the right person to take him to the next level? Mm -hmm. And about that same time, I got a phone call from a former colleague, another House chief, who said, hey, I'm going to the Pentagon. Secretary Mattis, you know, he's ready to go. We We need good people who know the Hill. Do you want to come over here? And I said, no, I'm not ready to go. That conversation happened again. And then I started thinking about, okay, if I were to go, are there people in our office who were ready to step forward? Mm-hmm. And we had two people in our off, our whole operation of 20 or so who could have been chief of staff for Congressman Whitman or any other member. Mm-hmm. So I knew that, A, it was time for someone else to step in and take it to the next level and, and B, that there were two people that could do it mm-hmm. and that... That had been my focus was preparing them to to go lead somewhere else. So that gave me the comfort that if something had presented itself, that I could go. So probably about the third call that said, "Okay, Jamie, we're ready. Like we're ready to move out. Uh, Secretary Mattis has a lot of priorities. He's really focused on the warfighter, on readiness. That spoke to me. So the idea of serving in the Department of Defense, where my parents had dedicated their careers, coming back there after I'd interned 20 years ago, it just all worked out. And I said, yes, it's time to be uncomfortable again. I'm ready. So interesting because we often talk about this in the context of women um, running, that they have Mm -hmm. to be asked more times than men, just statistically, Mm -hmm. all all the studies bear that out, Republican or Mm -hmm. Democratic women. And I think it's oftentimes even in the private sector or in the, you know, in the in the public sector of service where you still have that kind of barrier where oftentimes the man will just say, of course, I'm ready. Like, you know, they, you know, I want I'm ready for the next ring. And sometimes women just have to be asked or have to really kind of process it a little bit more. I think that's fair. I think for me, my biggest vulnerability or weakness or fear and saying this out loud for other people to hear is hard, is very vulnerable, is letting other people down. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a teammate or it's a supervisor or it's somebody that I mentor. So the idea of letting someone else down or not fulfilling an obligation or not staying as long as I think I should or it's perceived that I should is very, is personally difficult for me. So I think I, it, I had to kind of reconcile all of those thoughts and be like, okay, well, now I am ready. I'm not going to let anyone down by leaving. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let the congressman down because he is going to be very well served by me going to do something else. And when I asked him for his thoughts and his advice about what I should do, he said, you will be missed here. You've done a lot of great things here, but it is time for you to go serve in a different way. And I, I, it would be selfish of me to say no. And I'm very grateful for that because I don't know that everybody would have, would respond that way. I realize everyone's replaceable. <laughs> That's not what I mean. But to have nope. someone invest in you and say, 
yes, I, I'm going to support you when you're going to go do something else was really meaningful for me. Tell me, so obviously Secretary Mattis was there. He was running running um, DOD. He has since resigned from the cabinet in December. Um, walk us through a little bit like the two years at the place. There's been a lot of changing and shifts. I mean, is it just kind of whiplash some days or has the priorities changed with the new cabinet secretary? It's hard because to give perspective beyond what I know because I don't I've not worked in an, in the administration before I've not worked for a different secretary so it's kind of hard to say well this is this way and compared to you know a different way it, it, it's different for these things Secretary Mattis we benefited by the timing when we came in and having the national defense strategy. And when I talk about the national defense strategy as it relates to dealing with Congress, it's great because it's a roadmap. It's the strategic plan, right? That makes our job so much easier because you could say, if someone wants to pitch something to the Hill, well, how does this connect back to the national defense strategy? And so Secretary Esper has picked that up. And I think that's been a, a very enduring, positive strategy in that you may have leadership change at the top, but the institution itself is still working towards that strategy. And I think in, in business or in on the Hill, um, having that foundational strategy to measure yourself against, mm -hmm. and particularly in a public way, like the NDS is public. And so Congress will say, you said you're going to do X, but mm -hmm. you're doing Y, right. where you're going to hold you accountable for that. It's a very interesting place to be in because you have to be accountable. If you say, this is what we say we're going to do and we do it, it's, in, it's right there in black and white. So I think my short answer to that question would be the national defense strategy has been the guiding principles for the department and everything we do is measured against that. And that makes our job in legislative affairs a lot easier. There's a new generation of women in leadership throughout the defense uh, department, externally, actually, at a lot of the, the big contractors as well as internally, uh, and which was typically a traditionally male-dominated world. What do you think it means for women like yourself to be in these sorts of positions? This is a it's a good question. The reason I'm having trouble kind of articulating it is because I feel I'm just really excited about it. I think that women um, are talented. They're smart. They know national security. They're experienced. And of course they should be at the table. Of course they should be at the helm of major corporations and making major national security decisions. Somebody said to me the other day, like, you could be the first female blah, blah, blah. And I would like to get to a point where we just don't say that you could be the first mm -hmm. female whatever anymore. Mm -hmm. I think we're getting closer to that. I think that we've got to celebrate, yes, women are taking on these roles. But I think we also have to then, we all have the obligation to hold the door open for someone else to come through. So that to me is the next step. Yes, let's celebrate it. Let's acknowledge it. We're supposed to be there. We have a lot to give. But now let's hold the door open and sponsor other people to come through that door and be in those roles too. All right. Well, Jamie, thank you so much. Thank you. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 